you know, the way that our consoles work, they don't ring. You don't have the choice to pause and, and pick it up. When the console's available, it picks up the call for you. It's automatic. There may be zero seconds between one call to the next. Making the caller hang up, or do you mean making the responder hang up? I'm wondering if, if there is a thought process about whether the caller hits end or if the dispatcher hits end. Ah, um, at least for us, yes, we can we can be the one to say I love you first and hang up the phone. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, no, you do it first. No, you do it. <laughs> it's like trying to jump on a moving train. You're not trying to stop the train or divert it because the train's got to go where the train's got to go. You're just trying to get on it. And if you can get on the train, if you can get in and you can insert yourself with them, then you can start exercising your influence on the controls. Welcome to Medic Mindset. I'm Ginger Locke. This episode was recorded in March of 2020. I had the opportunity to talk to a communications supervisor and educator. He's the perfect Medic Mindset guest because he's reflected extensively on dispatching and he's studied the science of human communication. This interview gave me a whole new perspective on the challenges that our communication medics are facing. What a crazy job. They try to exert influence on a situation with nothing more than their spoken word. It's simply fascinating. We start with him telling us about how he got into EMS. My public safety journey began in college uh, as a young adult, like many of us do. I mean, it, it still happens, right? But it's much more rare to find somebody that's making a career change in their 30s from some other professional career or trade career into public safety, right? I'm going to pause you there just for a second, because I've been thinking about what you just said. In 2008, we went into recession. A lot of tech companies were struggling. A lot of people lost their 401ks and their financial security. What we saw at the community college level was an increase in enrollment and people leaving pretty high paying jobs, either because they were laid off or because they elected to, to, to leave them. And they were seeking professions that gave them a sense of meaning. Our enrollment went up big time. I think big events like what we're going through right now, it's going to create some huge paradigm shifts in people's minds about life purpose, meaning, all of that. And so I think we will see some of, some of those people in their 30s and 40s coming into EMS. You're totally right. Craving that, that sense of meaning, creating that sense of purpose, uh, but also the stability. You know, someone that thought they had a, they were comfortable, things were kind of working out, but when everything starts to become stressed, so did their position, so did their livelihood. And public safety, public service is one of those things that as long as there is society will, will, is rare to be in that position. Yeah. So tell me about your journey now. Not many people know what they want to do, but from a very young age, I, something, I don't know what happened. Something happened and I caught a public safety bug as a, I don't know, I've been five or six and I got a box and I took a blue marker and I drew the badge with the eagle on it. And I drew with the blue marker and a red marker lights on the front of my box and door handles. And it was a police car. And I had that box into high school. You know, we were all over, just like most kids are, you know, all over fire trucks and police cars and ambulances whenever they came around and did their shows and tells and things. But, you know, when we came home from school, me and the block kids were jumping out of the back of my dad's pickup truck and running into the backyard to spray the tree with water or get our little plastic assault rifles and we're shooting the bushes. And it, and it was like that from a very, very young age and, and it persisted. So I got into to college. I went to San Antonio uh, for school and walked into the first firehouse I could find and asked them where to go, what to do. And it was a San Antonio station. So they said, well, go online and apply and you know we'll see you in a year or two if you make it. And I said, that's great, but I don't have a year or two. So I kept looking and found a volunteer station not too far away. So um, that same year, they graciously put me through EMT school and I worked for AMR, you know, doing your standard inter-facility transfers and filling in on the 911 trucks whenever there were openings, playing firefighter out in the county and uh, all the while going to school and 
wasn't liking the experience I was having at college. It was too big. I didn't feel like I was learning anything. I was passing all of my classes. I was doing pretty well, but I wasn't buying books. I wasn't going to most of my classes because they were so big at that point in your, you know, your early couple years of college that it's just lecture hall style. And so all you need to do is show up to the first day, get the syllabus, show up for the three or four exams along the way. And if you paid any attention in high school and these are your core classes, you can probably fart your way through the exams and do fine. That's what I was doing. And I couldn't stand it because it was taking time. It was costing money and I wasn't getting anything out of it. It didn't satisfy my, I don't know, my learning ethic really in conversation with my parents. You know, they said, well, what do you need to do to, to finish your degree? Like, what are your choices? I said, well, the fire department will put me through fire school and they'll hire me on when I'm done. And I could have started a career right then and there, uh, which in retrospect sounds really nice because, you know, I would have been, I'd be very close to retirement (laughs) now instead of as far away as I am, but I never would have left. Right. And I would have isolated myself from all of the experiences that I was able to pick up along the way. So I thank my lucky stars that I didn't do that. And I need to go. Hang on, can we can we pause right there for a sec? Mm-hmm. I think what you said was if you had entered the fire service, you would have isolated your experiences. Is that what you're saying? Absolutely. What do you mean by that? Had I stayed with the department that I started working for, I would be 18 years in to my service now. So when most are at a 20 to 25 year retirement plan them would make me very close. And while I would have access to whatever training, you know, is offered local, regional, statewide, could I have joined whatever teams that get training from all over the place? Absolutely. But what I would be able to respond to and the way I would be able to respond would be isolated to that particular jurisdiction or whatever jurisdiction they served whatever teams I was a part of that got to deploy to whatever areas, it's isolated to those things only. I would only learn from the people that taught me. And that means, you know, whatever instructors or supervisors are local at that organization, that's it. And they may be the best leaders and the best educators in the world, but they're only one or they're only one subset, right? And so had I stayed there, I would have only been exposed to that. And instead I went to many other places and experienced other jobs and other careers that I can say have had a real impact on the way I'm able to do the job now that I would have never learned had I not left. It makes total sense. And I think a lot of people listening will will relate to that. If you're experiencing what I'm experiencing right now, which is career satisfaction, if you're fulfilled in your work, (laughs) (laughs) you can look back now and connect the dots backwards and say, all those, what I thought were like hardships or challenges or changes in job function or new skill sets that I had to struggle through, all those things, all that friction at the time that I can only see looking backwards got me to like, I'm sitting in this chair very fulfilled today as a result of all that. Yeah. Even if you had the best educators and the best supervisors and leadership in the world, then you never get to experience a subpar educator or a subpar leadership. And that perspective allows you to appreciate when you got the things that were positive. It allows you to see them for what they were rather than being blind to it in the moment Uh, or jaded, you know, you learn how to do something from someone who does it well and can teach you well. You also learn how to do something by experiencing someone else doing something the way you don't want to do it. Can I ask you some specific questions about dispatching? Absolutely. Let's do it. In 1989, a show called Rescue 911 aired. I'm about to share how old I am by telling you that I was 13 at the time. Um, How old were you at the time in 1989? Um, In 1989, I was five. And that we watched the show. That was one of the things we watched in the household. You know, before there were DVRs, before there was on demand, you had to schedule the time to watch the show, right? And I can hear William Shatner's voice. This is Rescue 911. It was so, so fast on the Rescue 911 part or the 911, just the 11. I can hear it. 
did they play actual audio from 911 calls? I think some of them were. I think they reenacted some of them, but uh, some of the audio, you know, had to be real. Of course, I'm trying to remember back to my, you know, the, the time span of that show, you know, from five until you know, like 10 years old. I'm reading about it right now on Wikipedia. So though it was never intended as a teaching tool, it was kind of an, a 911 awareness campaign, really, I guess. Yeah, it really was. It taught everybody about, uh, you call 911 and here's the process from, in, in a dramatized version, from start to finish. Mm-hmm. I mean, I can I can remember specific episodes and specific scenarios from that show, despite it being, you know, 30 years ago. Okay, I'm going to read this opening disclaimer and you're going to remember them saying this. I'm not going to have it in Shatner's voice, but he says, says, this program contains true stories of rescues. All of the 911 calls you will hear are real. Whenever possible, the actual people involved have helped us reconstruct the events as they happened. So it did affect you. You did watch it. And was that part of the bug for you? Yeah. Yeah. Again, I don't know what the impetus was. Like, I don't know what the bug was, but that was one of the things that made it fun to play that made it fun to fantasize about being in the van that had the lights and the sirens on it to be part of the team that got into the helicopter that did the things and the stuff um, that you got to go out into the yard and make believe about over the weeks during the summers and after school and, and, and everything. Are there maybe top two or three things that field medics commonly misunderstand about communications? One I think for sure is that that is just card reading. The communications medics is just reading questions off of a card and they're not connected to the responses to the questions, right? Like they're, they're not connected to the details of why that question might be asked or what the outcome of that question is. Yes, we use triage cards and we use scripted questions, but the reasons why go a little bit deeper. It's not just reading questions off a card. There is a extremely large element of intuition and what I would like to say art to it. Because while you have the question scripted for you, that doesn't mean that the person on the other line is ready to hear it, is ready to answer it, understands it, or understands what you're trying to do in the first place. Like you have to have their attention and you have to have their focus to be able to just ask a simple question. And in a face-to-face conversation, it's very easy to tell when you don't have someone's focus and it's very easy to try to get their attention. And especially in the public safety world, you know, field responders have this thing called command presence and it's there whether they have, they want it or not. But just the fact that you wear a uniform with your name and a logo and or patches on it that you show up in, in a vehicle that is marked with flashing lights, you're going to have their attention and they're probably going to answer you. That doesn't mean that it's amicable. You know, that doesn't mean that it's a nice conversation, but you have that already over the phone that doesn't exist at all. Now, they can't see the uniform. The only command presence that the dispatcher or the call taker at that point has is their voice. It really is as detailed as a change in your pace, like how fast you're talking, your tone, where your pitch aligns, and the assertiveness in your voice changes their behavior and can enhance or aggravate something that's already present or can calm or alleviate something that's present. While the question itself is scripted, you know, rarely only in the most simple, just like a conversation you and I are having now, can you just read it and get the response that you want or a response that's reasonable? You have to use varying techniques to to get um, even just simple compliance out of somebody, even more techniques to get cooperation out of them. And then if you're really if you're really getting into it, getting collaboration out of them, working together with the person on the other end of the line, because there are situations where we do indeed provide life-saving instructions for those to work. You know, we can't use our hands to do them. So we rely on that other person to be collaborative with us to perform those maneuvers, to perform those instructions. Man, all oh, this gives me so much to, to think about. 
I'm over here taking notes. Um, you talked about tricks to get their attention or not. You, you talked about techniques to get their attention. First, I want to set the frame of what I think you're up against. And, and I think you, you know it better than me, but I'm going to talk about it. And then you tell me where I'm on offer or, or on, on track. So I'm thinking about a 911 caller whose family member is injured and they're in the same proximity of that family member, same house, same car wreck, whatever. And they're looking at that family member who's bleeding or disfigured. They're getting visual input and some often audio input from that family member. And then they're supposed to also somehow attend to a phone call with a stranger. I can't imagine what they're up against, which ultimately, if you're trying to collaborate with them, you're up against that same challenge. You're basically needing them to disengage, I guess, just enough from whatever's right in front of them to talk to you. Um, in a way, yeah. Disengagement only works in getting them to converse with you, though, because when you need them to start performing tasks, they have to re-engage. And you have to be able to, to be with them while they're engaged with what's going on what you're touching on and, and you know, what the, the caller is seeing, uh, or even if it's the patient themselves who's calling is they're wrapped up in the situation, no matter what the situation is, be it the one you described where uh, a close loved one is hurt and there's some visual trauma that's happening all the way to, it's just a fender bender accident. There may not be any major injuries, but the anger that somebody's feeling from being hit um, especially if they're harboring some societal or racial biases and the other person happens to meet that is just rage uh, or it's a fight, you know, in progress again, where the injuries aren't necessarily severe, but people are in, in any category of those, they're stressed. What they're experiencing is acute stress. What we know about that is that when they're in that acute stress reaction, their adrenaline's dumped and they can't see anything besides what is just directly in front of them. And even if they're not involved in it, even if you know they're just an observer or a bystander, they're in that fight or flight response. And so their ability to receive stimuli from multiple angles, from multiple sources is limited to what's in front of them. And their ability to process information, to critically think is just shot. You know, you're dealing with trying to not have them disconnect from that or disengage from it, but you're trying to insert yourself into the stimulus that they're accepting in a way that they can understand and process. You're, you're trying to be a part of it. It's like trying to jump on a moving train. You're not trying to stop the train or divert it because the train's got to go where the train's got to go. You're just trying to get on it. And if you can get on the train, if you can get in and you can insert yourself with them, then you can start exercising your influence on the controls. Okay. So that's a total reframe for me because as you were talking earlier, I was making notes. I was like thinking, what, what are the techniques to get somebody to collaborate with you? And I, I, was, I was writing down, I think not, not helpful things. Like I wrote down, Oh, should we like coach them to close their eyes? <laughs> <laughs> Medic mindset is supported by I simulate. And lately, I've been marveling at what EMS educators have been able to accomplish as they've quickly moved their in-person EMS programs to distance education. With screen sharing and video conferencing, students are able to see the same iSimulate monitor that they've used in the classroom. So for all of it, the sponsorship and the technological solutions, thank you, iSimulate. Oh, should we like coach them to close their eyes, <laughs> like, <laughs> like coach them down or something. But you're saying, um, rather than just fighting against this kind of un unwavering kind of direction to just kind of, uh, accept that it will be going in that direction and figure out how to, to join them there. Yeah. To jump in. If, if, if you're trying to save someone from, from rushing water, from the tide, you don't try to change the tide. You jump in and use it. And once you're in it, then you can start to exert your influence. And you're not wrong, you know, calming techniques and trying to refocus somebody's attention, that does work when they're in stress situations. But the amount of time that we have to work with them 
you know, the, the average 911 call, um, especially for, for us in our organization, is less than five minutes or around five minutes. And that includes obtaining the address, obtaining contact information, obtaining a nature of the problem, and asking the triage instruct, uh, questions and then providing instructions. All of that happens. You know, I just listed five things. So if you break all those down to one minute each, you have 60 seconds to accomplish this one task and 60 seconds with somebody who is running around like a chicken with their head cut off. Yes, we can sit them down and calm them down. But by the time you do that, we could have been there 10, 15 minutes ago. Five minutes. Mm -hmm. I'm going to take a little bit of a left turn and, and less about techniques of, of what you do, but more now I'm thinking about the communications medics experience and how five minutes, that is a serious jolt to the system and not much like, um, in, in five minutes, let's say I, as a field medic, I go on a really tough call and the first five minutes are rough. I've got another 15, 20 minutes to get that call turned around and resolution at the hospital and cleaning up after, you know, our, ourselves in the back of the truck. And there's that resolution of all those hormones. Mm -hmm. You guys do five minute insults like that. And then what do you, do you get downtime after that? It depends, you know, just like, uh, you can have short turnaround times in the field and that feels exhausting, uh, and taxing and back to back. Like you don't have time to process what you did. Uh, we experienced the same thing. It's just on a much shorter time frame, right? What we consider calls in queue. That's when 911 calls are on hold because there's more calls than there are call takers able to process them. Um, that happens every day. And that, that's multiple times a day, every day. That means that you're going to, you know, stop the call that you're on if it meets criteria, right? And answer the next one. And even if there aren't calls in queue, we just happen to be in one of the busier hours of the day, you can disconnect from a call and within a minute have another one. You may spend you know, five minutes, or if it's a longer incident, you know, 10 plus minutes on this call that is taking your entire focus and taking your entire energy to really struggle with somebody. You're, you're back and forth with them in this power struggle to obtain information and provide instructions. And as soon as it's over, you can exhale and the phone rings and you're you're live right back into it. You have, your body has not had a chance to decompress. Your hormones have not had a chance to reset. Even your mind hasn't even let go of, I finished that call. And if it's one where we've urgently disconnected because it's a 911 call that's holding, you can be in the middle of that fight and you never leave it because it just carries on to the next. You tell the one person, I'm letting you go because I have to answer another emergency call. We have a quick instruction after that, call us back if anything changes or they get worse. And as soon as you hit the button to release, your console picks up the next call. You know, the way that our consoles work, they don't ring. You don't have the choice to pause and, and pick it up. When the console's available, it picks up the call for you. It's automatic. And so there may be zero seconds between one call to the next. I mean, that I can only equate that to... Um, to being on scene of an incident as one patient is refusing or you are wrapping that incident up, another one walks into the back of your ambulance. Yeah. I don't really like that. <laughs> no. That, and that, that really goes the way it's supposed to go. Does it? And you know, the, the critical patients, they can't walk into the back of your ambulance, but you, that's the best way I can equate that is, you know, while you are still thinking and processing and trying to, you know, provide closure to one task, the next task has already started. And so there's, there's absolute bleed over. There's absolute Passover of those emotions and those feelings and trying to go from an absolute train wreck call and Mima's on the line. And she needs somebody to be calming and reassuring. She's scared. She's never called 911 in her 98 years of life. And she's getting the person that just got done talking with somebody who needed an aggressive, assertive, you know, forward pressure triage and instructions while receiving abuse backwards to go from that and flip a switch and be what Mima needs in seconds, literally seconds. 
Yeah. When I said I don't like that, that's I was imagining the dispatcher's experience. I don't really love that for them. The closest thing I've seen is, um, I mean, you're right. Like if somebody were to, maybe you're on a call, but somebody walks up to your call and has something else going on, or you suddenly discover there's another patient or something like that. But I think of, I've watched ER physicians work a code and literally walk out of that room, wash their hands, and then they're you know, in the next room over talking to somebody about their upper respiratory infection within 60 seconds because they just have to keep seeing patients. Oh, that's a perfect example. Yes, that that is spot on. Kind of that instant compartmentalization. I have to put this on the shelf to be something for somebody else, then make sure that there is time to take those things off the shelf at some point and put them where they belong. And And we do get downtime, you know, not every shift is is like that all the time, but when the busy hours get rolling and they do, um, you know, they can last for hours like that. And that relief may not come until you get to log off and leave at the end of the night or in the morning. Okay. Well, I'm just going to let that sit there like that. I mean, I suspected it was like that, but I thought that after maybe a tough call, they, they could kind of put their console on hold, so to speak, and just like, give me five seconds, just like we clean up our ambulances or we take out, we get to go to the bathroom when we get to the ER, right? Like we can literally go in a bathroom, lock the door and just be there for a second. And no one can make us go on another call for just a second. (laughs) We get to own that. Do they have that same capacity? Do they have that ability to do that? Yeah, absolutely. And, and again, this is different everywhere you go, you know, some places in your smaller um, 911 centers, especially in the overnight hours, it may just be one or two people there. <laughs> and so if your your partner is in the bathroom, no, you can't walk away from the console, you know, especially in ours um, and, and in most places. And that it's the same reason that, that field responders are able to do that and pause for a little bit. It's because this is, it's a team effort. You know, there, there's not one ambulance on the street. There's not one person in the comm center. And so if somebody needs a break and they need a minute, Everyone else around them, if they're good people, recognize that we need to take what we can. When I can carry more, I carry more because I know that my buddies will do the same for me if I need to shed a little bit of that weight. And so absolutely, if someone takes a bad call, all they have to do is look up. Um, I need a break. And there can be calls in queue. And, you know, as long as, you know, the break is available you know, like there's not someone else already out. Absolutely. Go. We'll take the rest of it. Even if there are other people out, if somebody needed a minute to decompress or they're not in a place where they can take the next one, it's just like a a field responder. Like if you're going to be out there, if you're going to be available and we need you to be quote available, that means mentally, you know, physically, emotionally, all of those things. And so if it, you know, if you need it, absolutely. The rest of us can take it. Um, but you know, part of what goes into that, and I think part of what a lot of us in public safety do is recognize that we we also have a duty, not just for our job, but a duty to each other to keep ourselves, you know, mentally fit and physically fit and emotionally fit so that we're as resilient as we can be so that when we do need a moment, we're not going to unduly burden everybody else around us because we encountered something that was so difficult that we need that much time. Are those things out there? Absolutely. And, and they do happen. And we do respond to those and, and tr- you know, take care of the people that experience those in the best way possible. But, you know, we also spend a lot of time working on ourselves to make sure that we're able to handle as much as we can so that we don't need those as often or the duration isn't as long. That's well, that's well put. I'm thinking of, like turnaround times at the hospital when I when it's an easy call and you know the system's overloaded and you're part of that team and you know the medics that are out there running those calls you do you do hustle to get back in service because uh, you understand like the collective experience I've been talking to medics all over the country in the last couple of weeks and a few of them have told me like they've had this existential question of man do I do I keep doing this job like I I, you know, and for fear of their own health consequences or um, actual, you know, they're they're worried about being in an ICU on a ventilator and dying. Like they're worried about reality of what's going on right now. And all of them 
at the end of the conversation, like where they get after lots and lots of processing out loud about that, about their duty to their family and all these things, is that they feel a really strong duty to their colleagues, to their coworkers. They can't abandon them. Mm-hmm. It's like they don't want to take a day off or not show up to work because they're thinking about them, which is it's pretty, pretty powerful stuff. It's remarkable. And especially in an environment where you do get to go home and see your family every night or, you know, when you're off shift in between shifts and you get to have, you know, non-work experiences. So you don't have the same intense camaraderie that you get from, say, like a wartime environment, you know, or, you know, barrack style where you're embedded with a, a team almost exclusively that you feel that that strong connection with the other people that you're with. Um, we live and work in a a setting where it's only partially like that and you have the choice and you have the distractions and you have so many other things pulling your attention and pulling at, you know, where you want to divide your devotion. Um, and the decision to say, I'm going to stick with this because my friends need me, my colleagues need me for those that think that deeply, you know, this city or this County, this jurisdiction needs me and people like me, I, I want to continue to do this despite the risks. Uh, it's phenomenal. Mm-hmm. It's like the best of humanity right there. It really is. Well, I'm going to tell you about one of my experiences with communications. Once we were dispatched to go to like a, an address and it was the numbers were like one Oh nine, but we heard one Oh five. So we were two houses down from where we needed to be. It turned out to be a cardiac arrest. We didn't know it at the time. It came out of shortness of breath. You know, dispatch was telling them, no, they're there because we had checked on scene. And we were looking We were looking at an empty house. The family came out of their home, which was two houses down, and kind of waved us. And we figured out what had happened, the 5-9 problem. It was really distressing for all involved. You know, every single person involved was, it was just communication error, right? Like it was unintentional. It was distressing for the family, distressing for us, distressing for dispatch. Has stuff like that happened to you? And I don't know if I'm asking for specific examples, but more just the heaviness of how important it is to communicate so clearly. And even then, stuff just happens. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think just like the weight that you and other field responders feel to get the calculations right, to follow the correct procedure, to not miss the the underlying symptom that, that changes your assessment direction, right? To see all of those things, the pressure to be knowledgeable and competent and expeditious and technical in their skill. We have all of those also. To be competent and knowledgeable means we have to be subject matter experts on the jurisdiction. When that comes to the triage, sure, but also to the roadways, You know, people that are calling us and and telling us locations that describe them in literally every way that you can imagine. Um, (laughs) I can only imagine. It can be, I'm at 1234 Main Street. Like, cool. Got it. That's a physical address. That's perfect. I'm at the third lamppost past the green car behind the Chili's. (laughs) Okay. Got it, man. We'll be there in five minutes. Um, Yeah. You know, we, we get the descriptions in every range possible. You have to know, is what they describe singular? Did they describe a single unambiguous location mm. that you can use? Or did they describe something that needs clarification? It needs enhancement. It needs something to corroborate what they said, because what they said could be many different locations or like five, nine, you know, that you you hear a number that transposes easily and it's just not certain. Like we have to be subject matter experts on that. And there are literally thousands of different streets in the city and the County to know all of them, you know, sounds tedious, but at the same time, like that's our wheelhouse. Like that's where we have to exist. And, you know, while the pressure to, to know that, to be competent, to be fluent in those names, the way things are described all comes with, the pressure of, of knowing that if we send it to the wrong spot, we can be individually responsible for the situation you just described. But instead of just two or three houses down, you misinterpreted the street name 
And so it's no longer just, we can walk down the sidewalk and go to the right house. It's, we have to cancel that ambulance and send a completely another one, you know, and now we're talking, you know, minutes, uh, 20 minutes, you know, depending where it is, not just that, but, you know, you send someone to the wrong house, you know, how are they going to react to having their door pounded on at three o'clock in the morning? That's dangerous, no matter which way you cut it. So yeah, that pressure lives in us all the time. There's a lot that goes into that. I mean, there's, there's research in the 911 call taking world of how you ask questions, how it affects the way the caller responds and which techniques are appropriate and which are inappropriate, you know, which are considered uh, almost negligent practices versus best practices and how to obtain information from people to make sure, because it's very easy to throw your hands up and say, you know, they said 105 Philomena street. And I, I had said to them, well, if you said 105 Philip Meaner Street, right? They just affirm what you say. Like I checked with them. They said it was good. Well, yeah, but we know that that is a negligent practice. By parroting information back to somebody that's in crisis as a professional, are they more likely to just affirm what you said to make it go faster? Absolutely. This is studied. There's data to support that. That is exactly what happened to me on that call because I said back to them what I had heard. You know, that had been my practice at the time. It's an understood closed loop communication, right? That's acceptable. I tell you what I heard and you tell me if it's right or not. Right. So I paired it back and and she the dispatcher, you know, didn't correct me. And so that was a source of anger for me and but I mean, I get what anger is now. I I get that anger is a secondary emotion. What I really probably was feeling was sadness or scared or well, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And knowing that in, in that environment, like that when, especially when two people are stressed, whether it's the responder and dispatch, or if it's the call taker and the caller, both people are experiencing stress in that situation and asking, you know, one person to affirm to the other, you know, this is what I'm hearing. Did I hear it correct? Versus you know what, what we use as a standard practice, which is, should be an industry practice is, you know, you repeat to me what you said, and I'll make sure that I heard it correctly instead of I'm telling you what I heard and you tell me if I got it right. Um, at least in the realm of addressing, figuring out specific things like that and specifically to the world of 911 call taking, the only way to truly uh, shed the liability of getting it wrong is to accept the location from them, enter it into the CAD system and make sure the CAD system accepts it. And then once the CAD system accepts it as a valid location, have the caller repeat the location so that you can read what was entered on the screen as the caller is repeating it to you to ensure that once that's sent to queue and it's sent to dispatch to be to be pushed out to the field units, that the caller didn't get it. Well, they still may have gotten it wrong, right? But whatever they told you, they told you twice. Interesting. They said it the same way two times. Fascinating. That you entered it the way that they said it. Right. You know, if they say one thing, you ask them to repeat it. Okay, cool. You said the same thing twice. I go to type it into the CAD system, but I fat finger something. Well, then I'm relying on myself to notice that I did it wrong. Yeah. There's a lot that goes, that goes into trying to assure that the location that we push out is accurate. And that's, that's without using the technology that we have, right? That's without using the cellular technology that is sometimes available or the the location information that comes in with a 911 call. Um, but again, that's, that's if that's it, that information is available, which it's, it's not, it's not always, not always available. Yeah. Addressing can be, can be very similar and it's, it's shortcuts that get taken, you know, because the computer can slow down and you don't want the gap in the conversation. And so you ask them to repeat it just to get the verification from them before you have a chance to enter it. And it's just small things like that, that buck process that leave you exposed to, getting something wrong or, you know, like, like you said, your experience in hearing a number that is phonetically similar to another one and not using an alternate method of delivering that or receiving that message that can change the way it's interpreted. We see that all the time with letters, you know, apartment letters, building letters, duplex letters, anytime that those are in there, we almost have to default to using phonetics to, ensure that it's correct with the, the wide range of accents that we have, especially in an urban environment. It's not just, you know, uh, 
English and Eastern Texas, Western Texas accents. It's it's every language and every accent of every language. So B's and G's and D's and E's all sound the same in, in certain situations. And so it's necessary to use the five versus niner or G like George, B like ball, C like cat to ensure, you know, those aren't confused. Yeah. For me, it was, I think I've thought a lot about that call because it was three well-intentioned people. The caller was well-intentioned, dispatcher was, and I was, and we all wanted it to go right, but if something broke down and it's just the system of communication has inherent errors um, and then how, how you can make a better system. Um, because it, it did come down for, for, at least for my end, it was an accent issue. I was working out in kind of a, a rural area. And so <laughs> the nine sounded like more like a five, like it just, the, the long, <laughs> 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 oh boy. Um, that molasses got in the way and drew it out a little bit too far. Didn't <laughs> I think so. What tips can you give field medics about communication and how to de-escalate, how to get people to listen, how to get people to focus on what you're saying? What does a call taker or a dispatcher know that a field medic might not know about how, like you were talking about cadence earlier and things like that? What do you know? Mm-hmm. Um, do you mean in terms of how that could apply to their interactions with patients and bystanders in their environment or how that applies to interactions with us? For, for field medics so on, on calls, what, what you know about communication, because you're a communication expert. You're a verbal communication expert. You're not a nonverbal communication expert. You're a verbal one. So you only have tone, cadence. Yeah, exactly. That's, that's what I was just going to mention is that, uh, that the verbal expertise almost, it doesn't dissolve, but it, it loses its weight when you can see it does it doesn't it doesn't have as much weight to it when you have nonverbal communication. So the same way that we use we use tone and cadence and timbre and pace, right? Um, in somebody's speech, somebody who's in that same environment would use body language, posture. They're looking at where their hands are, how their feet placed, where are they at in the room, how fast are they moving, you know, are they fidgeting, you know, all these movement things that you pick up on, all those details. And that person may not say a word, but you can tell exactly what they're wanting to do because of what they're doing. It's the exact same language. It's just visual for those that can see it and auditory for those that can't. Yeah. And I think I've read where nonverbal communication, they've tried to put a percentage to it. The majority of a message, I don't know what that number is, but it is the majority is nonverbal of how to get a message across. That is funny. I'm glad you you mentioned that because... Most of it is nonverbal, especially when you're speaking with someone face-to-face and you can see those nonverbal messages. In the verbal environment, um, I think it's closer to half and half, you know, the the tone and, and the pace and, and the, the sort of non-word communication that's happening during a message. In the non-visual world, when you can't see and corroborate what that person's saying by other sensories, the words that are chosen have a significantly higher impact on the message. And that's something that we try to train and teach as much as possible is words matter. And the, the, what the, the choices are when someone chooses their words matter, because in the non-visual world, there's nothing other than what you can hear to corroborate what the person said. So if what they said was singular and non-ambiguous, then it's that, you know, unless there's a, a way to disprove it. Also, is recognizing when something is non-singular and when something is ambiguous. Because I think in our normal speech, especially like just the way you and I are talking now, um, even though we are in the non-visual environment, there's assumptions about your history, your biases, where you came from, what your worldview is, uh, and especially face-to-face, that someone can say something ambiguous, but the other person knows exactly what that person is saying. But in the disconnected non-visual environment, especially with people who are experiencing stress reactions, and especially with every person as a stranger most of the time, when we're talking to them, we need the ability to pick up on a message that is unclear 
or ambiguous. And we can make an assumption on what we think that person is trying to say, but that assumption is based on biases. That assumption is based on a preconceived notion of who this person is when we've had 45, 60 seconds, two minutes to talk to this person. You know, we're not omnipotent. Like we, you know, if we were, then nobody would ever have a staging or assault problem. You know, nobody would ever go to the wrong address on a cardiac arrest. So we, you know, we can't, we can't assure that what we can assure what we can try to do is understand when something's given to us like, okay, you said this, but you know, that really could mean two different things. Or there's this one little thing that's hanging off that, you know, we need to rule out or clarify or enhance that person's message and reflect it back to them in a way that is, Hey, this is what you told me. It can either be one of these two things, or this is what you told me, you know, explain more about it so that, that we don't exist in a world that's ambiguous and non-singular, right? Because that's what you as the, the field responder can use the most out of, hey, this is exactly where it is. It can't be anywhere else. Yeah. And so far, we've mostly talked about call location, right? But which is a 100% objective. They're, they're only in one spot. <laughs> <laughs> At a time. Oh, oh, they could be moving, I guess. Man, there's so much you have to deal with. And they won't even tell us. Oh, I'm sure. I'm like, sure. Hey, I'm at this intersection. And five minutes later, hey, we're here. We don't see anybody. Do you also have them on the line? Yeah. Hey, man, they're there. Do you see them? Oh, no, I'll walk three blocks away. <laughs> like, dude, you know you got to tell us that, right? Like, all right, we'll be there in a minute. <laughs> so even just taking out what I imagine is your first priority is just the location. Then you have this whole mm-hmm. other object- objective of getting, gleaning as much info you can about the patient's condition. We're always making fun of you guys for the disconnect between what dispatch says the patient condition is and what we actually find the patient condition to be. We're always making fun of it. And I have a healthy like understanding of how hard your job must be, but I also have seen people be kind of shitty about it too. I have to be honest, right? Yeah. A little bit of an us them sometimes that I really wish, I wish it didn't exist and I'm sorry that it does. You know, it doesn't exist as much as it used to. As technology has improved, it really falls on the organization to either tolerate or not tolerate that culture. Um, And so organizations that try to keep their communication staff at a similar uh, level in all respects, position, titles, it could be pay, it could be respect, it could be this understanding that we're equals in this game, you know, equals in the pursuit of affecting this mission, that falls on the organization. You know, the, the line staff can only do so much if it's not supported from, from above and from at all ranks. And like I said, technology helps a little bit too, you know, um, especially with systems that use software to help manage the system and cover areas that, that aren't covered because there's units that are out of service or they're, they're busy on calls. In the olden days, it was the crew that was on the shady side of dispatch for whatever reason that got posted, right? Those are the ones that got the crappy calls that got sent to the crappy spots. And, you know, from the communication standpoint, the communications leadership, if you tolerate that, then you also tolerate the us versus them, right? Um, And that's something that we just don't play. Also, we have the technology to back up. We rely on software to do those things for us. So that is not necessarily a dispatch discretion decision to move someone from point A to point B at whatever time they choose. It's when the software recommends it, do it. And that's if you evaluate the recommendation and think that it's prudent. You know, we're not making those independent decisions anymore. Um, and we're not choosing which units to send on calls. And that's why we use triage um, to decide, help decide which units are going on which calls. Um, that I think that's a lot of where the disparity of information comes from is the, the rules of triage and the goals of triage are to set things into priorities so that we can diligently and with due regard say one person with a non-emergent low acuity complaint will get a lower priority call type, which allows higher priority call types to be responded to with closer units or with different types of units, right? We're not trying to figure out what's going on with the patient. That's not what our triage is designed to do. It's designed to uncover potentially serious portions of that complaint and to draw out potentially acute problems 
And then on the, the lower side, to assure that there are no acute complaints, there are no priority symptoms involved. And if that's the case, we can downgrade the call. And if there are ones involved, well, which ones are a little bit more severe than others? And that's it. Outside of that, it's a little bit of information gathering. It helps with data collection. Um, it helps us with what specific instructions we give. But as far as the field response goes, the only thing we're trying to figure out is, you know, do we have enough information to assure that this isn't high priority? Because everything has to default to high priority because, you know, we have those cases out there um, that are major cases of what ultimately ended up as a breach of duty on the responder organization because of what the 911 caller said that was misinterpreted by the dispatcher, you know, not picked up on as this was, this was a description of a priority complaint and it wasn't taken like that. And so, you know, when responders go to a call, it's like, Hey, this is a high priority respiratory call. And the, the complaint when they get there is back pain. Well, thanks dispatch. You know, this has nothing to do with that. Conversely, they show up to a low priority general sickness type complaint. And that person's having an acute MI, like they are, first five minutes there, there's a STEMI alert call. You know, what happens in those is, you know, in the, the low priority that gets dispatched as a high priority call is they provided information that, that indicated that those priority symptoms were present. And that can't be ignored regardless of what the other complaint is. And on the flip side, the one that dis- got dispatched as a low priority, they were asked if the person's breathing was normal. And it was. If the person was completely alert, meaning 100% alert, not even a fraction lower they said that they were. Was there any bleeding? They said that there was not. Do they have any pain? They said that there was not. And so in the absence of all of those things is how we get to say, okay, we've checked and these were clear. Yes, no, you know, absence versus presence type of things. And they're not there. And that that's how we, you know, arrive at those conclusions so that, like I said, we can with due regard say that these calls are lower or higher priority than the other ones. And it's not perfect. Uh, there's no way it can be. We are non-visual. We can't see the signs that need to be picked up on because we're relying on a bystander or a first-person patient caller to describe, in their words, what's going on and then respond to our questions that are very specific, but our questions are only geared towards what they told us was happening in the first place. And so we're relying on untrained people and not just untrained medically, like communications untrained. like they, they may not know how to communicate, how to express themselves and rely on them to provide information that we are then able to get more specific details about, but that's really it, you know? And so when y'all show up to something that's completely different than what was obtained, at least in this system, it's, you know, rarely a fault of the triage. It's a fault of being able to understand what's happening. When EMS arrives, you tell the caller to hang up? Yeah. Um, so there's there's certain situations that our, our direction is to stay on the line and monitor what we define as a unstable or worsening patient until we can, quote, pass that monitoring or treatment on to another provider. We keep on with those or any in- situation where we're giving those instructions. Those instructions never end. There's never a, okay, you're on your own. I've told you everything I can tell you. You can hang up now. So yeah, well, on those, we, we stay on the line uh, as long as possible or until the responders get there. And then once once y'all are there, then yeah, we disconnect. Hmm. Do you make them do it or do you do it? The hanging up part? Uh-huh. Making the caller hang up or do you mean making the responder hang up? I'm wondering if the caller, if there is a thought process about whether the caller hits end or if the dispatcher hits end. Ah, uh, yeah, that would be... That'll be organizationally dependent, I think, um, at least for us. Uh, yes, we can we can be the one to say I love you first and hang up the phone. Um, <laughs> um, no, you do it first. No, you do it. Um, as, as long as, especially in that situation where we know that there's no disconnect in, in monitoring or care. Yeah, we'll tell them, hey, you know, you go talk to them. And if they don't respond. All right, well, screw this. We're done. Click, you know, they, they'll, they'll get it. You know, they're not going to negatively perceive that they come back to the phone eight minutes later when they remembered about it because they threw it on the bed when the, the person with the uniform walked to the door. Oh, you're not there anymore? Oh, that darn 911 call taker. Why, why'd they hang up on me? You have, you have to hang up because there are other calls that are coming. 
there may or may not be calls in queue that are waiting to be answered. But once the responder gets there, there's no reason for us to be on the phone anymore. And then there's other situations if the patient's not unstable or not considered worsening and we don't have instructions to give that we give simple instructions to help prepare them for y'all's arrival and then deuces, we're out. Yeah. There's no need to stay on the line, you know, in those situations. So we tell them that if anything changes or someone gets worse to call us back and um, the, the prudent method is to ensure that they understood those instructions and let them, you know, let them hang up the call. And something that we've noticed and something I, I trained the cadets on is, you know, we have a keypad on the desk that you push. And so while you're getting ready to disconnect because we're all so high speed and, you know, task oriented, task completion oriented, that they can hover over that button with their finger. And as soon as you say goodbye, you press the button. But imagining what that sounds like on the other end, you know, especially coming from an era where before cell phones, that you actually had to literally hang up a phone, like place it in a cradle, right? Mm -hmm. There was a, a time disconnect with that. And you see a lot, no matter what organization you work for is that the, the call ticket when they go to hang up, it's like, okay, thanks for calling. If anything changes, calls back, click. Mm. And it's, it's over. And experiencing that on the other end is very sharp. Uh, whoa, you couldn't wait to hang up with me, but your finger's on the button. So, you know, trying to take the mental pause of, you know, I don't need you to hang up first, but I'm going to take the moment of thinking about what it's like to place my hand in a cradle and hang a phone up just in case they do the, oh, wait, hold on, yeah. you know, yeah. moment. That's uh, that's some high EQ right there, what you're talking about. <laughs> it's the little things. It is the little things. I'm thankful that you're teaching those guys that stuff. And even going back to the diversification of experience that, you know, had I not had the ability to communicate as a field responder, had I not had the ability to communicate in various public safety disciplines, um, had I not taken the educational background that I took, had I not had the relationships and the interpersonal conflicts and communications over time and in different places, I may not have ever been in a place of being able to pick up on identifying trends in tone, rate, word choice combinations to say that person's angry versus sad versus grieving versus, hey, what type of anger and who are they directing it at? the ability to step out of a conversation and try to hear it from a third person's perspective while you're having it to try to make sure if I was hearing two people say the things that I'm saying to somebody else, would I understand it as a objective, non-involved party? Because that's the person that we want to have understand this. Even though my direct communicator is the person that I'm talking to, I'm trying to make sure they understand it, but my perspective also needs to include stepping out of it and making sure that this is not ambiguous. Everybody can understand this. This is being put in a way that is singular and non-ambiguous. I could talk to you forever. This has been so nice for me. You've asked some, some fantastic questions, and I think that there's, there's a lot more to it. I think you've got more questions. I think we'll have to, to dive into those at some point. Yeah, I do. We've been talking for close to two hours now, and I have to tell you, ever since this, I keep calling it the pandemic thing, but really I should call it what it is, which is since this pandemic, it's not just a pandemic thing. Mm -hmm. um, since the pandemic started, I haven't been able just to get lost in a moment, and I've totally been lost in this conversation with you, and it's been just a nice break. I, I thank you so much. You know, I want to say thank you for, I know you, you, know, you offered me many opportunities to, if we needed to reschedule and and we, we got this on the books and it happened to fall during this pandemic. And while it, it is certainly tempting to, you know, push stuff like this aside and, and focus on other tasks that need to be done as well. I thank you for, for staying on it because part of a positive response to something as globally impactful as, as this pandemic um, and locally impactful is the ability to see through it. And to see to the other side. And it's important for us to stay on track with things that are going to continue when this ends. Because this will end in one form or another. And when it does, there will be life on the other side. And if all we do is get caught up in this. And all we do is think about how this is impacting us now. And what this changes about my life and what I can and can't do. Then we are also preparing ourselves for when it does end and we have to resume a different kind of life on the other side. 
it's stuff like this that helps us think forward and, you know, remain focused on the things that are still going to be there when it's gone, like learning and, you know, focusing back into the other parts of our career that need us, you know, yes, we need to focus on this pandemic. We need to solve this problem as it's coming to us and solve the problems that arise, but we're still going to have new hires. We're still going to train to new people. Medicine's going to continue to evolve in, in all aspects. And we need to stay up with all of those things too.